You're listening to The Future is Disabled, a program for 3CR's 2022 Disability Day broadcast on the connections between long COVID and MECFS and what it is like to be a multiply marginalized disabled person with MECFS. Before we get into that, you're going to hear a track from June Jones. This one is called Trauma Girls. The experiences of people living with MECFS can offer us insights on a future where increased rates of disability as the result of long COVID look likely. Emerge Australia is a national organisation providing education, advocacy, research and support services for people living with myalgic encephalomyelitis, 
chronic fatigue syndrome, otherwise known as ME-CFS. There are more than 250,000 people in Australia living with the condition. The impacts of ME-CFS can be disabling. It is estimated that 25% of people living with the condition are housebound or bedbound, with many people living with these conditions unable to work or participate in community life. In March this year, Emerge Australia released an official statement on the close links between ME-CFS and long COVID. Scientific studies indicate that the most frequent shared symptoms of people with long COVID and people with ME-CFS, post-exertional malaise, or PEM, cognitive difficulties, and fatigue. Much research on both ME-CFS and long COVID are desperately needed, and many of those living with ME-CFS continue to sound the alarm on the completely inadequate and sometimes dangerous medical advice often given to ME-CFS patients. So in this program we're going to be hearing from someone who has been living with ME for a number of years now. I'll let them introduce themselves. Yeah, so um, I'll go by Alex um, and I am a disabled person with uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis or what gets called chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, and I have, I am quite like impaired by that. And yeah, so obviously I identify as disabled. I'm also queer, trans, an artist, and have been a sex worker as well. Yeah. So, Alex, I connected with you um, in the place where I connect with a lot of chronically ill and disabled people, which is online. And I also came across an ongoing fundraising page for your literal day-to-day survival as someone with ME uh, who is not able to access the National Disability Insurance Scheme to help with the costs of that daily survival. So to begin with, could you tell us about ME, uh, what it is and the impact this has on your day-to-day life? Yeah, sure. So it's called myalgic encephalomyelitis. So um, basically that word means like inflammation, brain inflammation. And it's a multi-system like illness um, that has no formal testing for diagnosis. So it's diagnosed by ruling out a lot of other conditions as the cause of the main symptom. Um, The hallmark symptom of ME is post-exertional malaise, which is ongoing fatigue after an event of exerting yourself past a certain point of your capacity. So for different people with different levels of severity, their ability to exert themselves is different. For people with mild ME-CFS, they might kind of after doing some exercise, they might be stuck in bed for a few days after. So, yeah, it really depends on your severity. 
um, for like severe people with ME-CFS past their capacity is, can be things like tolerating noise and light for too long or even at all. Like there are people that have to basically spend their, most of their time in a quiet, dark room, um, in bed, resting, um, with headphones on to block out any noise. There's, yeah, obviously with each person it's different. They don't know exactly what causes it at the moment. There's different research happening, but because, because it has like been a like highly kind of stigmatized and poorly understood illness that just gets blamed on laziness or being unfit. There hasn't been really funding that goes into it to research it. Yeah. So there's like a lot of different, there's a lot of different aspects of this illness as well as um, some patients turn out to have connective tissue um, issues happening where it's degenerated their connective tissue. Um, there's a lot of comorbid kind of conditions like people with ME-CFS might also have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is when you are upright, you experience tachycardia, fast heart rate. Um, as well as like other dysautonomias. Yeah, there's just like a lot of systems in the body that are impacted by ME-CFS, but we haven't really got the solid like confirmation. So the fundraiser that I mentioned at top, the fundraiser notes and updates have mentioned how you have been rejected from the NDIS multiple times. Could you tell us about what the process of applying has been like for you and what justifications for the repeated rejections have been? Yeah, so I've applied for the NDIS five times and I'm currently in the process of, um, I don't know if it's called an appeal if you're at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal with your NDIS case. Um but I'm in that process and I've been there for over six months now. Um, and I have no lawyer. Um, so I was rejected from any legal aid. Um, and I've only just had an advocate. Um, I've only just made it to the top of an advocate waiting list um, to try and help me. There's this kind of main problem that keeps coming up where they will say that my condition is to be dealt with through the medical system, not NDIS. And I submitted, you know, my internal review information to legal aid with my application and regardless of what I explained to them, they rejected on the basis that my condition is to be dealt with through the medical system. Obviously, NDIS 
well, it might not be obvious, but um, NDIS tend to deal with impairments, not conditions themselves. So if you have impairment caused by a particular condition, they will deal with that. But yeah, you need to prove that you are fully treated and stabilized um, as well as well as like fully diagnosed and that the condition is permanent life, like lifelong. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So lots of questions come up on permanency of the condition. Um, yeah, but that's why I was rejected from legal aid. Well, (laughs) yeah, I can't afford to pay for a lawyer myself. So I just didn't do anything. I just went through to the case conferences with the AAT, I forget what they're called, and the NDIS's lawyer. <laughs> so basically I have to just talk to like this lawyer and have the AAT person, yeah, on the phone by myself. <laughs> it's just really stressful because I don't know. I don't know stuff. Like... <laughs> Yeah, that sounds absolutely horrible. Yeah. So what are your other options for financial support, given the NDIS will not assist you? And if you tried to access those, have you been successful or not? I tried to access aged care. Like I'm I'm not at the age where aged care is usually given. Um aged care is for over 65s um but in certain cases where you don't have any other support aged care is like supposed to be the last resort um so i had an aged care assessment team come and assess me in my home and they were saying like the level of care that we could give you with aged care is not enough. You need NDIS. Um, we don't want young people getting on to aged care when it's not appropriate. So that was maybe eight months ago, maybe. Um, and I don't have any other support like other than fundraising um so other support that I've tried to get um through RDNS there is a I forget exactly what the name of the package or program is I think it only goes for three months but it's it's for people that don't have NDIS or other options um but they weren't able to support me either Age care had said you really need an OT assessment, like you really need an OT assessment to provide more evidence for NDIS, but also OTs are very expensive and they're not covered by Medicare. Like there is a rebate, but for a report for NDIS, it's like 10 hours of work that the OT needs to do. So I've been quoted like the out-of-pocket expenses would be 
$1,200 or so. And, you know, where do you get that money? <laughs> like, if you can, can't really work, you know, if you just like, like I'm on the disability pension, finally, I've only been on it for a few years, but that's not enough. Most of my, yeah, my expenses are way higher than the pension. Um, you know, where do you get, how can you afford the out-of-pocket expenses? So basically they were saying, well, our DNS should be able to provide that for you. And they were saying, we'll talk to our DNS and stuff. I don't think they really did. And I called them up a few weeks later and I was like, Hey, um, I'm just really wanting to know, can, can, this is aged care. Can, can you support me? And yeah, they just kept saying no. And then they gave me another number, Ability First Australia. And I'm not really sure exactly what happened with them, but they were basically like, no, we support people at risk of being put into aged care. But for some reason, I'm never severe enough. Like I, I'm mostly bedridden. Um, I can get out of bed a bit. I use a powered wheelchair and I can go out of the house only a little bit, like at most a couple of hours a week, but it's still all past my capacity, basically. Like I'm forced to do like a lot of things because I don't have the help to do it, but it all makes me worse every time I'm pushing past that capacity. So basically that's still not enough for them. Like, <laughs> but I think because with ME-CFS, it's like, Technically, you know, if you do something and it makes you worse, that's not in your capacity, right? Like, so I think they see because you get up out of bed and you have that shower because you haven't had one in a week, they see that as not bad enough, but you're going to be in bed for ages after you have that shower, that one shower, like, and you know, years go by that you're without support, you just keep getting worse. So it never seems urgent enough, but it's been urgent for me, like almost four years now. Like, yeah, I used to be a, a much, I used to be much milder, like with my symptoms and it would be just attributed to other chronic health conditions that I have. Yeah. It took me a long time to have any formal diagnosis so yeah you were asking how do I fund supports then and it's basically like fundraising has been the main source like a huge chunk of it some of it has been accessing there's a grant called like the DaCosta grant which disabled people can access to pay for things it's not very much but it paid for a little bit of my powered wheelchair two years ago. Um, so I'll access, I'll try and access like little things like that. And then I also will try and access artist kind of funding, like accessing a benevolent artist fund for artists that have been impacted by unforeseen circumstances and stuff. But yeah, it's never very much compared to 
the overall amount that has been fundraised. But yeah, it's so hard because people, you know, people are so generous and donate a lot, especially other disabled people, other sex workers, other queer and trans people. And yeah, it's like other multiply marginalized people just, they have just such a capacity to care. Um, so I find that really hard to accept donations from people that I know are multiply marginalized because like, it's not sustainable. Like, yeah. Oh gosh. That's come up so much in my conversations with people this year about the burnout and just the fact that it, it shouldn't be left to multiply marginalized people who are poor to be taken care of other multi multiply marginalized people who are poor. It's it, you're totally right. It's not sustainable. It's yeah. Yeah. I read, I read like, I read this post somewhere on Instagram where someone was talking about being a queer person of color and that they, they notice so much burnout and it's real. Like the burnout is real. They were saying like, but it's because within the community they've just got such a small well of resources that they can't you know just rely on so yeah i think i think that's it's just not sustainable like it needs to come up from people with more capacity you know more more privileges coming down rather than just people that can relate but i don't know how to yeah it's hard to know how to reach people to care um, but yeah, I just always feel bad when it's like other multiply marginalized people because I know I know how much they're struggling too, and I don't want them to put me before themselves. Like, but yeah, also yeah, overall the funds just yeah never seem enough as well. Like, I just need so much help. So I just need like I really need daily support, but. Yeah, it's just really, really hard. And also I can't employ someone from a support worker agency and stuff. I can't, I can't give the funds to someone I don't have a kind of connection with or a friend of a friend where we have the understanding that I rely on fundraising. So I need to, I will pay you and I'll pay you in full, but it won't be by a certain time um like it's just as funds come in which is so hard like because people that help me you know and they've all been like so supportive and great they help me um you know because they're not working full-time and they're on job seeker you know which is like horrible it's like below poverty line you know they're on job seeker, so yeah, a bit of extra money is helpful for them, but it's like I can't give them the job security either, so it's it can't be flexible for them. Like, you know, there's no sick pay, there's no so that is really hard because I don't have the level of consistency that I need, um, as well, which is yeah, obviously really hard. Um 
Basically, I need NDIS. You just heard a portion of a longer conversation with Alex, detailing some of the extreme hardships of being a multiply marginalized disabled person with ME. To listen to a longer version of that interview and of this show, keep your eyes on the 3CR webpage for Disability Day 2022 after the broadcast. I used to think I was an extrovert, but I was just afraid of being alone. Coming off of my Alexa Pro, I can't text to talk on the phone. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I really wanna, I wanna, I wanna go home. At a party trying to talk to you, but the music is way too loud. And these drugs don't do anything, I don't know. Yeah. 
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Community Radio, 855 AM.